We're here for another episode of the Regenerative Landscapes podcast. And I'm here with uh, Dan pretending to be Kevin because Kevin isn't here at the moment. Uh, I don't know if Kevin will get here in time or not, but if he does, then he can be Dan. <laughs> so I'm Kevin now. Yeah, sounds just like him. Um, so yeah, we were just talking a little bit before we got on air because I think today we kind of want to get right into the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, obviously, everybody knows or should know of the uh, horrific war going on in the Ukraine between them and Russia primarily. And uh, even though it's happening over there, it's affecting everything around the world from oil and gas prices, food, uh, logistics of transporting things, all kinds of things are uh, are happening worldwide as a as a direct uh, influence from this war. Um, so I think Dan found some interesting stuff out uh, for the green scene today in relation to this. So Dan, take it away. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of thought, well, you know, with everything that's going on with Ukraine right now, and as Don said all these things that are being impacted because of it. I kind of found this article talking about um, climate mitigation. Well, because climate change, I mean, is also kind of <laughs> was on everybody's mind and that might be pushed to the side a little bit, but still kind of a <laughs> big uh, issue that we're dealing with now and will continue to deal with if we don't kind of act sooner rather than later. But uh, anyways, kind of sort of tying everything together. I found this article talking about climate mitigation measures that uh, could impact food security. Um, and this was out of the International Institute for Applied System Analysis in Aust Austria. And this was an article from uh, March 7th of 2022 of this oh, year. This year, yeah. So it's very yeah, relevant. So, yeah, pretty recent. Um, I, yeah, I forget when kind of the, the data that they started taking it. But anyways, it's yeah, relatively recent. Uh, so, yeah, climate change is on the minds of many people around the world and various nations' leaders as it continues to increase in intensity and just seeing all the effects <laughs> continuing to uh, be more prevalent in our daily lives. And the Paris Agreement set out goals and targets for nations to meet uh, to combat climate change with eliminating greenhouse gas emissions in the energy sector being the prime method uh, for doing so. But other sectors such as agriculture, forestry, and forestry accounted for approximately a quarter of the total greenhouse gases in 2010. And I think that's just kind of slowly been ticking up more and more um, as these sectors continue to uh, be needed more. So therefore, you know, we need more space and more, more work to be done in them. So i.e. more greenhouse gases being uh, emitted because um, I mean, our populations are just growing too our needs are growing too within these populations but yeah the study's looking to say that the goals of mitigating uh, these greenhouse gas emissions need to look in a wider scope than just energy and focused uh, than just energy focus and that all various sustainability initiatives in various other sectors should be looked at to integrate uh, integrate them more so as well um, it looks at as what the impacts these initiatives will have on um not just these sectors and kind of the i don't know i don't know if i want to say corporate side of things but also looking at um the general public like how is it's going to affect you know you and me uh so the approach for mitigating these emissions could lead to increase in um food prices and a decrease in food security 
So for those that don't know food security, when I say that, it means the state of having kind of reliable access to sufficient quantity of affordable and nutritious food. Because um, I think that's, yeah. So anyways, uh, the study has three reasons for food price increases due to plan decarbonization strategies that through the Paris Agreement and whatnot kind of came down to. Uh, so the three are the increased costs associated with methane and nitrous oxide abatements, uh, the current decarbonization strategies uh, that could be that could cause intensified competition for land due to the expansion of bioenergy crops. Um, so the, those are kind of like you know using corn and that you know crops that are going to produce your vegetable oils and whatnot to use for more eco-friendly energy options. But for and things then, that are not food, so there's taking up the food space, basically. Exactly, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you're going to plant this whole crop of corn that's going to be turned into an oil to use to run a machine or something that would otherwise be used by fossil fuel, but it's not being used for, yeah, being able to <laughs> serve as a yeah. food for somebody to <laughs> live off of. Yes. And then, um, and then the third thing was uh, they could lead to um, these strategies could lead to a higher value being placed on forest carbon uh, to sequester additional carbon and prevent large-scale plantations and bioenergy crops from encroaching on forest land. So those are kind of the three um, things that they're looking at within the study. So the study looked at the three reasons uh, that I just stated and used a few global uh, agriculture economic models to determine the extent in which agriculture markets and food security would change uh, if a lot of these um, uh, strategies would be implemented just straight up and not really take into account much else. Uh, so focusing just on the socioeconomic conditions, uh, such as population, like future population growth and economic level improvement, uh, they found that the global population, I mean, you can kind of see where I'm going with this, that the global population would see a significant risk of hunger, hunger by, like they say, 2050. Uh, so not too far off from now. And then affecting about roughly a quarter of a billion people. And of course, these are all just estimates. And this could be the conservative estimate or uh, kind of from what I read of the rest of the study and other things that like, I'm guessing that, yeah, it is pretty conservative in that there's probably, it's probably a lot more than that. <laughs> um, and, and of course, at how things go from here on in will determine how quickly <laughs> everything this turns like. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyways, yeah, they're just focusing on the socioeconomic conditions and yeah, as previously stated, uh, seems like, yeah, we're, there's going to be more people that are going to be at risk of um, hunger by in the next, what, yeah, 30 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if not sooner. And then, yeah, if the three previously stated strategies uh, were fully implemented, food prices would be estimated to increase by 27% and further impacted populations already at a risk of hunger. So kind of, you know, countries that are kind of already bordering, like, well, we're surviving, but if this, yeah, continues to go up, then it's, it's going to be a lot harder over? to... Yeah. 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 And so, there's, yeah, they're I just mean, saying it's going to be a struggle for everybody. <laughs> yeah. We already know there's a, a percentage of the population that, that does struggle with uh, feeding themselves and basic, uh, basic needs, right? So, um, if we can't get a handle on that, it's only going to get worse. So, we've got to cut 
come up with more strategies on how to navigate that for sure. Yeah. And that's the difference too, between like, I mean, we're talking about it as like, um, it's not just third world countries. I mean, it's here too. It's our most vulnerable people that are happening in first world countries too. And even, I mean, people in like, I mean, I consider myself kind of in a middle class. Like, I mean, it's still it's like it's kind of becoming more of a struggle. Oh yeah, it's tough when you when you have to like, you have the same amount of money and you have to cut it up so many more ways to to make stretch everything out for your uh, your living costs, right? And then something like uh, the war in Ukraine, um, it's it's not something that's planned, but you can definitely see the effects it has directly on on their population because now access to their food has been cut off or food production has been temporarily stopped is the direct, you know, kind of version of it. But also as it filters out, demand causes increased prices. Uh, logistics of transportation causes the inability of product to get out to where it's needed. And, uh, you know, something happening like this, uh, you know, this year they're not going to be growing their crops in the Ukraine if this war keeps going because, um, it's not safe, right? Like you don't want to be out in your fields and shells and bombs are shrunk. That's if they're right? even if the fields so, are still in the same condition, right? Exactly. Um, the like there's again so many so many variables. Ruined, but but um, the Ukraine's one of the top producers for for Europe, and if they're taken out of that um, that bunch, so to speak, um, then it falls to everybody else to pick up the slack and you know, that's not going to be feasible if they can't already feed what's already there, right? Um, and then that's when you start having things like looking to more towards importing from countries like such as ourselves and the States, but then uh, costs go up because people in our homeland want a portion of that food as well. And then, it, you know, it just, like I say, it escalates and become becomes a money grab thing because, of course, whoever's selling it wants to get as much as the top dollar that they can, um, but it's whoever can afford to pay for it. So that means there's a lot of people that are left without. So, so yeah, f- um, definitely finding solutions on how to um, feed more people. Emergency circumstances like what we're seeing over in the Ukraine, as well as for the future with this, you know, things like the climate change and everything are definitely key. So. Mm-hmm. Um yeah so yeah where was i prices yeah so yeah so the three previously stated strategies were fully implemented food prices would be estimated to increase by 27 percent further impacting populations already at risk of hunger so yeah food price increase would also stem from the higher cost to reduce um, methane and nitrous oxide because those would just cost more uh, mm-hmm. increased bioenergy crops and large-scale afforestation. So afforestation uh, is foresting an area that was not previously forested. Um, mm. So, you know, if you take kind of a, <laughs> let's say a grassland, for example, and you decide, oh, we're going to do a big Plant more trees. Uh, area just full of, yeah, <laughs> aspens or pines or whatever, uh, kind of forcing trees to grow where they're not really, weren't naturally grown there before, mm-hmm. um, just for harvesting or whatever means. But anyway, so. Those are kind of the three things tied with that. But yeah, these changes are also not uniform in the sense that methane and nitrous oxide abatement would have a greater impact in, let's say, Asia and forestation having a greater impact in, let's say, uh, Africa. Um, So it's not, yeah, it's not completely like, oh, we say um, that these changes would be globally all the same in every country and every continent. 
Not yeah, it's going to be relative to the local conditions and yeah, 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 for sure. So, um, and yeah, within the study, they assume that there is a uniform global carbon tax applied to all these various sectors, which isn't true because <laughs> not every country has the same idea of how to put a carbon tax on whatever's happening in their country, right? Because, like, I mean, we, you know, in Canada, we have our federal carbon tax and then even within that some provinces have their own provincial carbon tax that isn't exactly the same as the federal one and then you look at the united states and i haven't really looked into many other countries different kinds of carbon tax and what they do if they do have one but you have to think that yeah it's not a uniform uh uniform thing globally for their Mm -hmm. carbon tax um and then also another thing too is that um yeah it is easier to measure CO2 uh, from fossil fuels compared to carbon stored in forest stands that could be eroded from by our energy crops. And this also has the assumption too that nitrous oxide and methane would be subject to the same taxes as CO2, which it's very hard to kind of compare the two. Because we always think, yeah, when you're doing a carbon tax, it's always like CO2, kind of what's coming off of uh, an oil and gas refinery or from emissions from cars and stuff like that. I mean, that one I think is a little more tricky, but it's still easier than uh, trying to figure out. You can't lump um, everything together from... in the same basket. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all variable, but for the purposes of this study, like it'd be very, it'd be a very intensive study to really nitpick and get into the, and Details. I mean, if yeah. these studies have the money and the time to actually get to all these individual, um, I forget what the term is, but basically all these individual outputs for greenhouse gases. Um, and actually look at, okay, how much is being set out and then actually properly analyzing, okay, this kind of carbon dioxide or this kind of greenhouse gas emissions or whatever emissions contributing to um, reducing our ozone and climate change overall, um, how much is this going to cost versus this kind of different one? Yeah. And I think that's something that would yeah. take a very long time and a lot of effort to really nail down and actually be able to present that to these emitters even like i mean i think it'd be great if we could get to that point but i think yeah it might, it might be money wise and time wise it might be just an average of a few different ones the biggest ones and then just say okay cut down the middle that's kind of what we're going with <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah uh, but what did they say yeah they said and then overall the authors state that they themselves need to be careful about generalizing their model assumptions and for anyone referring to their data to be aware because again with all those things that i just listed that um yeah it's not just a one size fits all for kind of kind of collecting data for all this but then also kind of presenting that to um whoever is going to be using this data for uh, making policy decisions or whatever um that yeah it just just to be made aware is what they kind of wanted to get the point across but yeah i think the study helps to understand how kind of complex reducing our emissions and implementing sustainable practices in all these various sectors can be and that it should be, I think, a collaborative effort to find the best possible approach for uh, reducing emissions while also kind of bolstering food security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's definitely more um, intricate and complex. So um, it's not like you can snap your fingers and have an instant fix-all. But I think we've been we've been saying that with most of most of the different topics we've been going into. It's um, it's a cumulative combined effort from a whole bunch of different areas and. Uh, different factors coming together versus there's no one, you know, cure all. So 
again, it'll be, it, it's it's good that um, people are becoming more informed, and now the next step is action, right? More people need to take that information and start acting on it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so was that uh, that was it for your uh, for your green scene there, or do you have? Yep, yep, for, that was yeah, it. Yep, just well, wanted to good. kind of look at yeah, just how. You know, we look at, yep, climate, like we know climate change is a thing. <laughs> we are trying our best to combat it. And this was just a study looking at like all these efforts that are looking to kind of reduce our emissions and try to combat that is that it can't just be a, yeah, we're going to do that and not really think too much about um, kind of, well, what they're trying to say is like try to be more collaborative with all these things that would, that will affect not just trying to combat climate change, but their main thing was food security because a yeah, lot of it ties the, in with being able to grow food and be sustainable in that way. And yeah. Cause that, yeah, that web filters out to a lot of different areas. So there's a lot of different fingers that uh, connect with other things that all come back to the, the same initial uh, climate mitigation and then the food. Um, well, food shortage already, but potentially a lot worse food shortage if we don't get a handle on things, uh, which actually brings me, well, a little bit in part to um, the plant adventure guide. So again, as we were talking about the Ukraine um, and the food shortages and things going over there, um, they are a very big agricultural component of the of the EU and the the European uh, countries over there. And they're put in this position right now where I think, like I say, farming and and some of those things are the last things on their mind. But they still need to feed themselves as well as uh, you know, how is it going to affect their economy down the road and everything else. But coming out of that, something that offers hope, I think, or, or represents hope, um, and also the tenacity of the Ukrainian people, uh, is the sunflower. And people might be wondering, well, why has the sunflower become so prominent on the Ukrainian scene? Um, I did a little bit of history digging in. First of all, um, it's been around for a long time. They've been actually cultivating sunflowers since the 1700s over in uh, the Ukraine. And what really brought it to the forefront on a public uh, sense is back in 1996, uh, ironically, to celebrate the Ukraine giving up nuclear weapons, Russian and Ukrainian defense ministers planted sunflowers at Ukraine's, uh, I might get this name wrong, but I think it's Pervomayask uh, missile base as a symbol of mm. peace and longevity. Um, and then ironically, look at the state we're in now with Russia and the Ukraine yet again. Um, and uh, I just hope that everything works out quicker than it has been because everybody's surprised it's been going on this long already. And I just hope there's a good outcome for the Ukraine. But to go back to the uh, sunflowers, to put it in a, I guess, a more local perspective, uh, Alberta is fortunate enough to have some native sunflowers. And also, I'm sure uh, (laughs) you realize, Dan, what family is the sunflower family in? (laughs) Or what genus? That's so huge. Is it Aster? Yes. So um, (laughs) any anybody that works with native plants always laughs because the Aster family is one of the largest families, and it's just a crazy mishmash of trying to sort out all the different species and everything. 
but this this one com, uh, smaller component within it, the sunflower family, um, we do have some native sunflower species specifically, and also a few relatives that are close enough that you can tell that they're related just by looking at them. And um, uh, as you know, I'm with Medieval Manor Gardens, and what we're going to do this year is 60% of all of our sunflower and sunflower-related species sales, we're going to um, send to the Ukraine to help them. We've actually got some friends that are Ukrainian that uh, through their local church have set up a group where instead of um, sending funds to the Red Cross and some of these other things, which are good institutions, don't get me wrong. Um, if you, if you've sent to them already or whatever, that's great. But the, the thing is, is a lot of them, when they reach their cap of what their goal is, then the money starts to get filtered to other areas. So maybe now you're helping Africa or somebody instead of the Ukraine, uh, which again is fine. But if you're wanting specifically your, your funds to go to the Ukraine, you might want to look at something else. Um, also what, what this particular group has been finding is there's certain things they just don't need anymore. They've been they've been getting sent a lot of certain items or or just the straight money, and there's other things that they just need more. So they need specifically things like the the uh, the military. They need boots. They need flak jackets. They need helmets. That kind of thing. Um, women with children. They need uh, diapers and things like that. So this group has I got a basically a top list of the the most current things that are needed over there and they've got a way to get into poland um to get these things delivered and so um my plan is to you know donate to that so that they can buy exactly what they need and get it exactly where they need it so if anybody wants to support that by all means um and in the meantime i thought i would go over some of the species so that people will know some of, of which ones they are and also um, possibly find out more about some of these sunflowers than you ever thought possible. Um, so to start with, I guess we'll start with the, the main ones, the actual sunflower natives. So we've got our uh, Helianthus is the, the main, I guess, genus name. Um, but we've got two of them that are that occur fairly regularly here in Alberta. One is Natali, which is the common tall sunflower. And the other one is the uh, rhombic-leaved sunflower, which is Helianthus possiflorus sumrhomboidus, which is a mouthful. Hence, I, will, I usually <laughs> say, we usually say heli-sub just because it's easier and it sounds cute. Um, but what's interesting is even though people, I guess, envision fields and fields of sunflowers out in the prairies, I guess, those are the annual sunflowers. Um, these particular sunflowers actually like moist meadows. They, like, uh, they, they can handle some drier conditions as long as it's not too long of a period, but they, they do prefer more moist conditions and still full sun, though. Um, the Natali, the common tall one, um, obviously it's fairly large, hence the name common tall. So it can actually grow up to two meters tall, which is uh, fairly similar to the commercial sunflowers. Um, and it's 
got the traditional yellow, happy sunflower face. The seed heads aren't quite as large. Um, those ones have been commercially developed over years and years and years. However, you can use them the same way. It's just that you, you take more of them to do the same thing. Um, so, of course, you can get oil from them. So you can get sunflower oil. You can toast the seeds, um, add them to your baking granola, eat them, whatever, however you like. But here are some things that maybe you didn't know. And actually, one of them I didn't know. Um, you can use them for microgreens. So you can grow the sprouts and eat those. Which is something people don't expect because they're like, well, sunflowers are generally, they've got that kind of um, fuzzy, um, hair, hairy kind of yeah. feel to them, right? They're a little more coarse. You think, I want to put that in my mouth. But when you just get the sprouts, they're not, they're not fuzzy like that. Um, and they're quite nutritious. And then you also have um, the kernels. If you grind them into a meal, you can, just like a porridge, you can add hot water, boiling water, whatever. And you can have kind of a gruel. Um, you can all, a lot of the indigenous people, um, would quite often mix them into cakes with bone marrow or grease because of course it's a high calorie item and it's also now packaged for travel. Right. So you might not oh, want to, cool. yeah. so you might not want to chow down on at your dinner table, like just a bunch of grease <laughs> and, and sunflower seeds. But if let's say you were going out on a backcountry trip and you're going skiing or hunting or who knows what. Um, it might just be something handy to take along, you know? Um, and here's one that I did not know. So this is cool. I love it when I find out new stuff. So I haven't tried this. I'm not saying I, that it's going to taste good or not. It's something that I would like some people to try and then please message us and let us know what, what the, uh, how it tasted, how, what the success, success rate was. But apparently the shells can be roasted and used as a coffee substitute. What? Huh. That's pretty crazy. Now you can also I'm, I'm use... I'm kind of curious as to how Yeah, because I'm sitting there going, uh, I'm, you know, I'm so used to the, especially when people get spits in the store or whatever, right? And I know those are mm-hmm. the commercial ones, but again, what are you doing? You're spitting out the shells and you're eating the seeds. <laughs> so to hang on to the shells for something is kind of like, oh, didn't, didn't see that coming. But anyway, that'll be something to try. Um, to recognize them, of course, they have that sunflower kind of look. They do have um, a sandpapery textured stem and leaves usually, although some some of the leaves can be hairless. So, um, and on the helianthus uh, natale, they're lance-shaped leaves because when they're small, it's hard to tell the difference. Um, the rhombic leaf sunflower, hence the name rhombic leaf, uh, their leaves are more of an oval lance shape or diamond shape, which is hence the rhomboides because they're rhomboid shaped leaves. Um, and that's a way to tell the difference as well as they're usually a little more on the reddish side, the stems. And they will also be um, slightly that hairy, rough kind of feel to them. So, mm-hmm. um, so those are a couple of our sunflowers. And then not too far off, still related. Uh, we have some other ones that you could probably tell they're related by looking at them. So our arnicas are one. Um, now, a big difference with the arnicas is you do not want to ingest arnica in any form. Roots, stems, leaves, flowers, 
do not ingest. They are not good for you. They're uh, somewhat toxic. However, they do have uh, healing properties topically. So if you if you get them into a an ointment, you can actually use them on um, certain skin issues as long as your skin's not broken. So if you have bruising or some sort of rash or something and your skin's not open, you can use Arnica cream uh, on those areas and uh, usually with quite good results. But again, just do not take them internally. Um, on the flip side, however, if you have uh, areas where you have a lot of deer and you don't want them eating <laughs> what you're growing, Arnica are quite deer resistant and it doesn't seem to matter which, which variety they're all, they all behave the same way. They're fairly deer resistant, probably because they're a little bit toxic to the deer as well. And also the, the more coarse um, fuzzy leaf thing might have something to do with it as well. But um, uh, how many, how many Arnica species can you think of that we have in Alberta? Uh, there's Arnica mollis. Yeah. Kind of the main one that I can think of. And that's the most um, soft, it's a soft, fuzzy, like a kind of like a, feels like a lamb's ear kind of one. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. Lancelate, is that one? Lancelate? Lata? Uh, well, there's or a lot of latifolia. That's the mountain Arnica. Okay. And that's, that's because they've, and they've got lance-shaped leaves, so they're pointy leaves again, so that's probably why. Um, Again, the Arnicas also prefer mo a little more moist conditions, but uh, most of them live in the foothills and woodland mountainous areas versus the sunflowers are more like the meadow living. So there's probably some crossover, but a lot of times you're going to find them in different areas. So that's one way to help tell them apart. Um, another way is sunflowers have mostly alternating leaves. So that means they're going to be, um, you know, one lower down and then one higher up on the other side versus with the Arnicas, they're fairly symmetrical, two leaves coming out of each side at the same level on the, on the stems. So that's another way to help tell them apart because, yeah, you don't want to mix them up if you're planning on eating the one and not the other. So um, we do also don't have... Don't What's oh, that? Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, it's going to give you another one. I think heart oh. is in heart leaf arnica here too. Yeah, that is uh, arnica cordifolia. And hence the yeah. name. It's got heart-shaped leaves. So a little bit wider leaves. Um, it's about 20 to 60 centimeters tall versus the hairy arnica, 6 to 24 inches tall. Again, would be difficult from height alone to decide which one's which because they're close. And also if it's a juvenile versus an adult plant, it would be t tough to tell. Um, another one is the shining, shining Arctica, which I have not seen yet. Um, it's Arnica full, full, full gears or full gans or something like that. I can't remember how to say that. Um, and it's more of in the prairie areas, but again, moist conditions. So it'd be probably in the lower ditches and things of the prairies. Um, it's 20 to 60 centimeters tall and it's got linear to lance shaped leaves. So. Those would be our Arnicas. Then we have another relative, uh, Gallardia. Um, that's our blanket flower. Now, blanket flowers have been commercially bred to have different color variations and everything. So you, you can now see ones that are, have gone for that mostly yellow with just the, the dark reddish brownish centers to ones that are almost pure red to ones that have a combination of red, yellow, or into orange. 
any of those things. Um, but here's something interesting. And I actually, I, I hadn't thought of this before, but um, one of these online seminars that I just attended, it brought up this really good point. So if people are wondering, does it really matter if I get a cultivar or if I get the original species? Um, it might not. People haven't done enough research really to find out yet. But there is a possibility that because the genes obviously change for the visual portion, so the color of usually the color or the size of the plant is is what people change. There could be other genes that are connected that change things like the amount of pollen or nectar production. Or you also have to think of the plant, the the flowers being a certain color. Well, they were attracting certain native pollinators. If you change that color, now does that totally look different to the pollinator and maybe they won't be going to that plant. Um, so these are some things to think about if you're trying to create a pollinator garden that you might want to try and stick to the original species. But if you can't find it or, you know, you happen to already have something, I wouldn't cry over the fact that you're using a cultivar. A cultivar would still be better than not having anything at all or using a completely foreign species right so mm -hmm. but yeah it was interesting to find that out um galardia they look like a miniature sunflower they're a lot smaller but they still have that you know sunflower look to them um they're usually found in the prairie roadsides th those kind of areas um they can handle uh drier conditions and again, this is another interesting one. So you've probably heard common names like brown-eyed Susan and black-eyed Susan, right? Mm -hmm. So for brown-eyed Susan, that attaches with Gallardia. It's another common name for Gallardia. But black-eyed Susan is actually Rudebeckia herda, um, which looks like another miniature sunflower-like plant. But that one is actually native to about the Saskatchewan border and east, it's actually not native here. A lot of places, and I made this mistake early on too, I was like, oh, I'm gonna grow some of this as well. And then I realized, oh, it's, it's actually, it's native to other parts of Canada, but not here. And I know uh, we do carry a number of Canadian natives uh, through Medieval Manor Gardens, but anytime I can find an equivalent that's more, more locally native, that's what I'll grow versus the other. So as soon as I found out this one is actually native more to Saskatchewan and farther east, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to grow, you know, coneflowers and the Gallardia and these other things here because they're they'll fill that niche just as well. And they're more they're more local versus the Rutabecchia. So so that's what we decide to do there. Um, the seeds from the blanket flower are quite bristly and actually um, the arnicas are as well, but I, th I find the, the blanket flower to be shorter. Uh, so they feel even more prickly, if that makes sense versus the arnicas a little, they've got a little bit longer fringe, so they're not quite as harsh, but yes, they've mm -hmm. all got somewhat prickly feeling seeds. I think you call, um, you probably remember better than me, Dan, Akeems or whatever. Is that what you call the the longer the, feathery like the, parts off the, the seed. Off the seed. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's called the keem, but 
Yeah, the Akeen might even be the seed itself. I'm, I'm kind of blurry. So I, somebody can correct me on that. That's a, an actual biologist or ecologist fresh out of school. That's fine. But <laughs> anyway, the, uh, yeah, so the, the blanket flower does have a, a shorter whatever. Maybe it's the, no, the pa- it's not the pappus. That's not it. All these names that I know, but I just don't know what they're attached to anymore. <laughs> it's all just a big mix-up. Um, anyway, but it's got shorter ones versus the arnica, so it'll feel even more harsh. Then we've also got, oh, this is another interesting one. It's it's a Canadian native, but it's, again, not native to uh, Alberta. However, I do grow this one because it's it's an edible, so... Sorry for all the diehards out there, but I do grow some that are edible that aren't specifically from here. And that is <laughs> Jerusalem artichoke. Ooh, yeah. So they're, uh, they're farther out. Again, it seems to be Saskatchewan seems to be our, our cutoff border because I think it's, it kind of goes from, it changes from the prairies here to the tall prairies and then into the Canadian shield. So it's just different landscape, right? Um, but anyway... They're uh, they're more grown for their tubers, which are the, so all the, mess- the members of the sunflower seeds ha- have kind of tuberous roots. But with the Jerusalem artichoke, they're just they've been grown over time to become larger, right? So you're going to get more bang for your buck when you're using them. Uh, but they do have uh, it's called inulin in the uh, in the tubers, which has pros and cons. So when it's in its raw form. It's really hard to digest and it's quite bitter. And so you probably don't want to eat any of these tubers from any of these plants raw. Um, mm-hmm. However, as if you start slow cooking them, so whether you boil them, roast them, something like that, it changes uh, the, uh, the inulin to a more sh- a sugary form. So it becomes sweeter. And then it also becomes more digestible. Um, and what's interesting is diabetics can eat this form of inulin without it affecting their blood sugar. So it's interesting that, you know, usually when you think of something sweet, you automatically think sugar, which isn't always a good thing for a diabetic. But in this case, when the inulin converts by being cooked, um, it can it can give a diabetic definite food value without... Go, making their blood sugar go wonky so that's kind of cool um on that note the arrow leaf balsam root is is similar to the jerusalem artichoke that way because again it's tubers can be eaten the same way you can roast them boil them whatever and it has that inulin um now arrow leaf balsam root which is balsam sagittata i believe um yeah it's cool because all of it can be eaten, the whole thing, um, sometimes at different stages, but all of it can be eaten. So the young leaves and the shoots are edible. Um, you can have them boiled, steamed, or raw. The juvenile leaf stems and stalks, so once they've grown a bit more, um, apparently, I haven't tried this, but they can be peeled and eaten like celery. Oh. So, hmm. And then, of course, the roots can be cooked, just like what I was saying with the Jerusalem artichoke. Um, and the seeds, uh, again, they're smaller, but they can be used just like the sunflower seeds. So all those different uses, making the oil, the uh, grinding up the seeds for gruel or uh, any of those things. Or, or again, 
try roasting the shells for the coffee. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and the uh, arrowhead. Coffee business, they don't even need a yeah. coffee plant. Well, I mean, you know, really it, it kind of makes sense. So they already use chicory and dandelion root and that kind of thing. So let's try, mm-hmm. let's try the, uh, the sunflower family stuff. Um, and of course, again, this is another one that's its common name describes what it looks like. So the arrow leaf balsam root, it has arrowhead shaped leaves. Uh, generally, this one thrives more on drier slopes in the foothills, mountainous areas of southwestern Alberta. I'm not sure. I may have seen some out in Drumheller, though, so it might also uh, like the, the banks of the coolies where it's, again, drier there as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's a little bit different because a lot of the other members like a little more moisture, right? So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of some of our key members of the sunflower family that uh, I hope people will take a, a, a second look or, or a, a, their first look at. Maybe they didn't realize that we had these here, but um, maybe consider putting some in your, in your garden area. Uh, maybe you can enjoy eating some of the products that they produce. And again, um, we're, we're doing this to represent the Ukraine and hopefully help support the Ukraine because uh, we've got it pretty good over here, actually. Uh, we got roofs over our head and we've got food in our bellies and we've got plenty of time to complain about the government and things that are going on over here. But all in all, um, you're not trying to figure out where you're sleeping at night. You're not waiting for bombs to drop on your head. You know your family's close by. Um, so I hope you realize that, you know, there's definitely others out there that are having a really tough time right now. So keep them in our thoughts. And uh, on that note, uh, I guess we'll try to positive, positive, positivify. No, I don't know what the word would be, <laughs> but lighten, <laughs> lighten the mood a little bit. Um, I'm not sure if, what, what name has he chosen here? What is this? Therial. The real Kevin. Oh, the real Kevin. See, because all I've got is the, it stops at K. So I was like, Theriok? What's your name, Theriok? I don't know. Anyway, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you stopped by. How, how's it going, Kevin? <laughs> it's going. It's going. I have uh, kind of an idiot walking for me. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about that yet. So. So we're you're gonna to try to posit positivify the movie yeah, as well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you... COVID is over, right? So uh, <laughs> so actually, um, since we're on the topic of sunflowers, do you have any sunflowers that are native to China that you can recall? No, it's just a uh, no. I've. Uh, I... Just the big sunflowers. I don't but even they, know what that's. But called. they do grow just, the they do grow the commercial sunflowers at least over there. Yeah, just those. I think those flowers, those big sunflowers, they are native to China. I think. Quick, I'm somebody look sure. them up. <laughs> it's the Halli Halli Anthus. Yeah. Oh, that. Oh, so the case. So they've got the annual one. Yeah, that one. I that's think the annual one. That one. Actually, I wonder yeah. if. It's- and actually, they grow that in the field, and it's like a very fancy thing. They go there to take pictures and all those stuff, because people living in the city, they don't see those stuff very often. Well, I'm also wondering, too, because a lot of the um, cultivated smaller varieties, because I think before we are talking about um, 
some areas really like the cut flowers. Maybe there's fields of those over there too. Oh yeah, they do. Apparently they like them for the, the seeds and the oil and stuff over there, just like over here. They call it, yeah, they call it sunflower because the, the, what's it called? The in, inflorescence, it uh, turns with the sun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, don't quote me on it, but I think most of these members of the sunflower family do a similar thing because they're they just basically follow the sun just like a solar panel they're trying to get as much sun as possible so they'll rotate around um if i know in the past when i planted the the bigger commercial sunflowers if you plant them backwards like facing north they'll actually grow twisting around till they they're facing the south or wherever the most sun is so it's kind of cool oh and actually so there you go i just found out so the the sunflower is actually supposedly native to North America. Guessing then that means the European ones have been brought over there from here, unless there's native European varieties as well. But anyway, but yeah, cool things to think about there. So I guess on that note, that is our plant adventure guide for today with the some members of the sunflower family so think nice spring happy thoughts with all these yellow flowers and hope you get out there it shouldn't be too much longer another month and a half or so two months <laughs> then you'll be able to get your hands in the dirt in your gardens out there and hopefully you'll plant some some sunflowers and some other natives and enjoy so until next time um keep it regenerative and please, again, remember to message us, uh, subscribe, like us, hate us, something. Just do something, people. I don't care. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>